We're going to read um, just the end of John chapter 7, and then we're going to skip the first 11 verses of chapter 8 and continue in verse 12. And I'll explain to you why a little bit later on. So John chapter 7, starting at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you too been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without, giving, without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you too? Are you from Galilee too? Search and see what no prophet, that no prophet arises from Galilee. And then down to chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. We'll stop there and let's pray. Father, I pray that you would now move among us, move within us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would illumine your word as it is preached. And Lord, what even things that are not yet written down, Lord, that you would bring them to my mind as they are needed. I pray also that you give grace to the hearers. Lord, give alertness, give, um, Lord, give discernment as we hear your word. And I pray that it would accomplish its work in our hearts and our minds and our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. In our four years together as a congregation, or pardon me, in our, what is it? Most of us have been together for seven, eight years. We've had the opportunity to spend two years going through the Gospel of Matthew, and Lord willing, after spending six months in John, we're going to spend at least another two years in the Gospel of John. We've taken time to reflect at length not only on the historical background and the progression of the narrative, but on the specific words and teachings of Jesus. What a blessing it is that these words have been supernaturally saved and recorded for us. In all history, no other man's words have provoked such a range of reaction among their hearers. 
Jesus rightly said in Matthew 10, verses 34 and 35, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. The words of Jesus evoke love in some, hatred in others, comfort in some, turmoil in others, joy in some, sadness in others. Jesus spoke in such a way that his words caused division, but the division served the divine purpose. His words divided believers from unbelievers, the righteous from the wicked, the sheep from the goats. But they also separated out and gathered and unified those whom the Father was drawing to himself. The words that he spoke, as we saw in John chapter 6, were spirit and were life. Jesus offended many when he said that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to have eternal life. But when they had left, all those who were offended, he explained to those remaining that the eating and drinking consisted of coming to him and believing in his words. Truly, no one ever spoke like this man. That will be the title of our message today, No One Ever Spoke Like This Man. We turn now to the words that have captured our attention for the last two Sundays and which are so pivotal to our understanding of the whole of Scripture. In John 7, 37, Jesus stands up in the temple in the last and greatest day of the Feast of Booths and he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly or out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John informs us, that in saying this, Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit that believers were later to receive. This afternoon, we're going to take just a little more time to dive into the depths of these words under the heading, Living Water. And then we're going to examine the effects of these words on the various people who heard them under the heading, Lingering Words. And finally, we will turn our attention to yet another provocative, divisive, wonderful statement by Jesus under the heading, light of the world. Let's begin with living water. We've already seen in our previous study that Jesus seems to be teaching against, or pardon me, to be teaching against a backdrop of certain ceremonies that were part of the Feast of Booths. One of those ceremonies involved the priests carrying water from the pool of Siloam and pouring it out at the base of the altar. This commemorated the water that flowed from the rock that Moses struck in the desert as well as the water that would flow from under the throne in the temple, as prophesied by Ezekiel. Now, Jesus stood up in the temple and clearly identified himself as the source of that living water, just as he did with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. But unlike that private conversation by the well, this was a public declaration in the temple. Remember at the beginning of John chapter 7, his brothers had said, if, 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 you are, if you are who you say you are, you need to show yourself to the world. And Jesus had no desire to show himself to the world, and yet we're going to see that he does reveal himself, but the world, for the most part, rejects him. While people did not understand that Jesus was speaking of the Holy Spirit, they did understand much of what the declaration implied. They knew that these were not words anyone could speak flippantly. 
In effect, he was proclaiming himself the fulfillment of the great feast, the very source of the water that sustained the Israelites in the Sinai Desert. The Feast of Booths celebrated God's abiding, abiding presence during those 40 years of wandering. It was a feast of joy, of celebration of God's provision, of the first fruits of the, the trees. It was a feast where the annual reading of the Torah was completed, a feast that was restored during the days of Ezra when he read the entire book of the law to the people as they stood and received it, and God gave his good spirit to the Levites and to the people so they would understand. And now, Jesus stood up and announced that he was the source and fulfillment of all of that. That was what was implied in his words. And there were some who would understand more than others what he meant. We will see in a moment how people responded to Jesus' words. But let's first consider just one more, once more, what these words mean to us. Last week we took a little detour into the Psalms, beginning with Psalm 1, where the believer is pictured as a tree planted by the stream, a tree that is unaffected by heat and, and that never fails when drought comes and never fails to bear fruit. That's a picture of the believer, the one who believes in him, is like that one who is blessed with the fountain of living water. Now we see echoes of that metaphor in the book of Ezekiel, where water flows from below the threshold of the temple, and the trees along its bank bear, bear their fruit in season. And then in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, where a river flows from the throne of God through, through the New Jerusalem, and a tree of life is on either side of the river producing twelve kinds of fruit, a different kind every month, and whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. In each of these descriptions, it is hard to know what to take literally and what to take symbolically, but we can see very clearly that God, or His temple, or His throne, is the source in every case. And we understand that Jesus is God. And we understand that Jesus is the temple of God, or the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God with man. And that Jesus sits at the Father's right hand on the throne. And that from, from Him flows the life-giving Holy Spirit. This Spirit brings life to the Dead Sea in Ezekiel. Now there will be a literal resurrection of that sea, but a dead sea, a sea is typical of people. When we hear of a great sea, it's very often typical of a vast number of people. Think about this, as water comes from the temple, from the very throne of God, from the very person of Jesus Christ, and brings life to this great sea, whether it's a dead sea with dead fish in it, or, or a sea with dead people in it. Now, we understand that Jesus is God, and the temple... Oh, sorry, I'll uh, find my place here. The spirit that brings life to the dead sea in Ezekiel is also called the river of the water of life in Revelation. In fact, the final invitation in the Bible is a free offer to all who believe in Jesus as the source of that living water. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let one who desires take the water of life without price. 
I want to bring in just one more passage that Jesus may have had in mind when he called the people to come to him and drink. And it's found where we read our call to worship in Jeremiah chapter 2. For my people, in verse 13, for my people have committed two evils or two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of water, of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Once again, in this passage, it is clear that God himself is the fountain of living water. But in John, Jesus makes it clear that he himself is the source of that living water. He says, come to me and drink. It's a simple deduction then that Jesus is claiming to be God. He is identifying with the God who is the fountain of living water. And perhaps some of his audience picked up on that and reacted in various ways. In any case, we hear, see here in Jeremiah that the typical, the typical response of the world when they come into contact with Christ, they forsake him. They reject him, and they dig their own cisterns. Cisterns that they have to keep filling again and again because they leak. They try to store up happiness and meaning and hope, but it all leaks out because it consists of temporal things and fleeting pleasures. They are like the woman at the well who had to keep coming to the well to draw water, but didn't realize that this endless, tedious task was a picture of her life. Five successive husbands and a common-law spouse, an endless pursuit of meaning, of fulfillment. But Jesus, our Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, is the fountain of living water. Through faith in Him who was pierced for our transgressions and out of whose side flowed blood and water, who was buried and rose from the grave and ascended to heaven, we receive the Holy Spirit. We drink freely of the water of life. What a tragedy it would be if anyone hearing this message would forsake that fountain. That last call, that last invitation in the book of Revelation, it is not only the Spirit that is crying out, come and drink, it is also the bride. And if, you, if we are going to be doing our work as a church, we need to be calling people to come and drink of the living water, which is available only through Jesus Christ. Now we're going to move on from... Oh, it's, uh, it's time to move on, though we have already uh, really only gotten our feet wet in the fountain of living water. We've spent two weeks on it, so I think we better move on. In Ezekiel's description, that living water is an ever-increasing flow, deep enough to swim in and impossible to cross. That is how wonderful the life that comes through Christ, through His Spirit, is. We move now from living water to lingering words. It seems that Jesus' identification of Himself as a source of living water brought many of the passages that we have just discussed to mind. And people were aware that He was making an extraordinary claim. His words lingered in their ears and swirled in their brains as they tried to fathom their implications. The first thing we see about Jesus' lingering words is that they cause division among the people. We find this in verse 7, verses 40 to 43. When they heard, in chapter 7, verse 40 to 43, and they, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. 
Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David, that comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. In their various reactions, the people demonstrate their lack of full understanding. There was some confusion over whether the promised prophet and the Christ were one and the same individual. In fact, many scholars would say that it was not until Jesus came and suffered and died that people really understood that the prophet to come and Jesus, the Messiah, were the same person. Others expressed doubt, being ignorant of Jesus' true origin and birthplace. They thought, they thought he was from Galilee when he was actually born in Bethlehem. Of all these all of these were common people, as opposed to theologians or Pharisees. They were simply processing the information they had received and reacting to it, and were at least considering the words of Jesus. Now over against the common people stood the chief priests and the Pharisees who lurked at the back of the crowd and watched everything that was going on. No doubt some of the others in the crowd were under their influence, for they had great influence, because verse 44 tells us that some wanted to arrest him. In fact, the Pharisees sent a delegation of temple officers to arrest Jesus, not wanting to get their own hands dirty. So we have first a division among the people, and then we have a delegation from the Pharisees. You see, the problem with the chief priests and Pharisees was that they knew the Scriptures well enough to understand the implications of Jesus' words. They knew, that, they knew the audacity the boldness of his claims. They knew that if the people believed in him, they themselves would lose all of their influence and their whole system of biblical interpretation would go up in smoke. So they they sent their thugs to arrest them, to arrest him. But even the thugs could not help but be moved by Jesus' words. When the Pharisees asked them why they didn't arrest him, they replied in verse 45, no one ever spoke like this man. The chief priests and the Pharisees' response reveals exactly what they think of Jesus. Have you also been deceived? They see Jesus as a self-promoting charlatan and a huckster who is sowing seeds of discord among their loyal followers. And they're very quick to distinguish themselves from the rest of the people. They explain... Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. In other words, we are the, we are the elite. We have education and degrees and diplomas. We have the monopoly on truth and the corner on piety. And this Jesus guy just doesn't fit our paradigm. And you guys are getting sucked in by his teaching just like this ignorant, uneducated, superstitious mob. Pharisees had contempt for anyone who did not know the law, by which they meant not only the Old Testament, but also the many traditions and mishnas that were collected from all of the rabbis of the past couple thousand years. They were exactly like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable who stood on the street corner and cried out in a loud, in a loud voice, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. If you recall that parable, it was the common man that the Lord heard, the publican who beat upon his breast and cried, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So we've seen a division among the people, 
Now we've seen this delegation come from the Pharisees, but something very unusual is about to happen. In verse 50, one of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, actually stands up for Jesus. So next, we have a defense from a Pharisee. In John 7, verses 50 and 51, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? You'll recall from John 3 that Nicodemus had come to Jesus by night and had engaged in a very thought-provoking dialogue wherein Jesus explained to him that a man must be born again, believing in the name of Jesus in order to have eternal life. You'll also recall that Jesus expressed his amazement that Nicodemus was a teacher of Israel and yet did not understand these things. Yet just as Jesus' words lingered with the people and the temple delegation and his fellow Pharisees, the words of Jesus have been lingering with Nicodemus. He does not regard Jesus with contempt, as do his peers. Instead, he addresses them in Pharisee lingo and shows them that in making a judgment on Jesus, they are actually contradicting their own law. It's a very pharisaical way of mounting a defense. Nicodemus doesn't come right out and say that he believes in Jesus, but his cautious defense reveals that the words of Jesus are lingering in his heart, doing their work. He has not stopped thinking about that encounter with Jesus at night. The Pharisees are so upset that they pull out their biggest, the biggest insult they can muster. Are you from Galilee too? You see, they had nothing but contempt for Galilee and its people. They saw them as not quite as pure, not quite as worthy of the blessing of God. After all, the very name Galilee means circle of the heathen. Then after calling him, or implying that he could be from Galilee, they piously exhort Nicodemus to search, presumably the scriptures and their own traditions, and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Because he stands up for Jesus, Nicodemus endures the ridicule of his peers. Not only do they suggest that he belongs with the Galilee hillbillies, but they imply that he is unfamiliar with the laws and traditions that the Pharisees hold so dear. But in their arrogance, they reveal their ignorance, because their great prophet Isaiah wrote of Galilee in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And this is what he says of that land. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. Now I'd like to move on to our last point, which is called light of the world. But before that I have to do a bit of explaining. You'll notice that I skipped over the reading of several verses in our scripture reading. And as you know, this church is committed to verse-by-verse -verse teaching of scriptures, and we consider it very important not to skip over those difficult passages or to cherry-pick the ones that suit us best. Well, I'm about to skip 12 verses. Uh, chapter verse 53, where the Pharisees all go home. 
and then the story of the woman at the well. I'm going to skip one of the most beloved passages, one that has such a profound lesson that it has been the subject of countless sermons on the compassion of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and the evils of hypocrisy. Yes, I'm about to skip over the story of the woman at the well, or the woman caught in adultery. And the reason for this is simple. It's not part of the Gospel of John. It is absent from most ancient Greek manuscripts. It is not addressed by any of the early church fathers in their commentaries on John. And in fact, it is only found in New Testament manuscripts dating after 900 AD. Furthermore, some of these manuscripts actually insert this story in the Gospel of Luke, or in different places in the Gospel of John. So despite the fact that it's a very moving story and seems consistent with the character of Christ, and has all the earmarks of historical authenticity, it is just not part of the Gospel of John. And I'm sorry if that's an offense to anyone, but please know that I am not disrespecting God's Word when I refuse to preach on this passage. In fact, I'm respecting it. If we acknowledge that this ancient anecdote can be seen as part of Scripture, though it is not found in the ancient manuscripts, and is found in different places in, in modern ones, we would then have to open up the door to admit hundreds of other edifying accounts into our canon that are not written by the apostles. There are all kinds of stories that date back. Now this story does date back a very long time. At least there's an earliest account I think is in the third century. And it may indeed have happened. But it was not included by the Apostle John. So this is why we're... So just to reiterate, I will not be expositing John 7.53 to 8 verse 11, but you can read it on your own if you like, and form your own opinion. There's actually another reason to skip over these words, these verses. They really do interrupt the text, and obscure a very important connection between the words of Jesus in 8 verse 12, where he's speaking to Nicodemus, and then... Between the, pardon me, the words of Jesus in 8 verse 12 and the exchange in chapter 7 between Nicodemus and the Pharisees. So now we move on to our fourth point, which is called light of the world. Or our third point, pardon me. Do you remember what time of day it was when Jesus came in John chapter 3? Came to Jesus? Came to Jesus by night. Scripture says that he came by night, he literally walked in darkness toward Jesus. Even throughout his dialogue with Jesus, he remained in darkness. He couldn't comprehend what Jesus meant by being born again, by water and the Spirit. But now, if the flow of Scripture is not interrupted by those, those 12 verses, we hear that what are probably some very consoling words from Jesus to Nicodemus. So let's look at chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And you're going to see how much more this makes sense when it is put together with the end of chapter 7. I don't think it's out of the question that as soon as Nicodemus reappears, this is his second appearance in the Gospel of John, 
It speaks in defense of Jesus. Jesus picks right up, right off where he left off and continues to evangelize him. I can almost imagine Jesus looking right at Nicodemus as he speaks with eyes that pierce to his very soul. Not only that, but Nicodemus has just been insulted and called a Galilean. Yet when we find Galilee in the, in the uh, prophetic scriptures, the promise is literally that the people of Galilee who are walking in darkness will see a great light. See, it makes much more sense when you put all these pieces together. It's as if Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, it's time to come out of the darkness. I am the light, the great light, the light of the world spoken of by the prophet. In the mind of this sincere and conscientious Pharisee, these words must have brought great hope. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Perhaps this general call, expressed before a largely hostile crowd, became an effectual call for Nicodemus. And perhaps Nicodemus began then to follow Jesus on that very day. We can't be sure, but it is clear that by the time of Jesus' burial, Nicodemus identifies publicly with Christ by purchasing spices and aloes to anoint the body of his Lord. Jesus identifies... Jesus' identification of himself as the light of the world also connects with the celebration that went on at the Feast of Booths. And we, learn that, we know this from secular historians and from, um, from other Jewish accounts. Every night through the festival, the priests would put on a light show with hundreds of torches in the court of the women, which was part of the temple. This was to commemorate the pillar of fire that provided light and protection, and protection of the children of Israel as they wandered in the desert. So again, Jesus makes a connection between himself and the light associated with God's presence. Indeed, the very Shekinah glory of God that descended upon the tabernacle in the wilderness and filled the holy place with the glory of God. This is, this is who Jesus is identifying with. I am the light of the world. Of course, the Pharisees react again to Jesus' audacious claims. You are bearing witness about yourself, they say. Your testimony is not true. In other words, who are you to say these things? If you are right, prove it. Now consider this. If the light is shining in the darkness, and if someone has eyes to see it, that light needs no witness but itself. It stands in stark contrast to the surrounding darkness. It reveals hidden things. Yet as we learn in John chapter 3, in the same discourse with Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, verse 19 to 21, Jesus says, or actually it's probably John interpreting at this point, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Next week we're going to pick up on the fallout that comes after Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world. We will see how vigorously people resist that light. But not everyone resists. Nicodemus, Nicodemus did not resist. 
Some are attracted to that light as moths to a flame. My prayer is that the words of Jesus would linger in our minds today. And that as they linger, they would draw us to Him. It may be that some will be angered by His words, as were the Pharisees, but to those whom the Father is calling and drawing, I trust we will hear and heed Christ's call to follow Him. No one ever spoke like this man. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the words of Jesus that are truly and indeed the wonderful words of life. And Lord, I know that most of us here are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is nowhere else to go for the words of eternal life. There is nowhere else to go for spiritual bread. There is nowhere else to go for living water. Lord, and that there is no other light. You are the true light that shines in the darkness. We thank you, Lord, that your word says that the darkness has not overcome it. And Lord, yet we we know that despite the vigorous light that emanates from your word as it is preached through your Son and through the Holy Spirit, There are many people that are utterly blind to this light. We know that in order to look and live, you must move upon their hearts. You must give them spiritual life. You must shine your light into them. And you do this through the proclamation of the gospel. It is a complete act of God when people receive this message. So we ask that you would be faithful to your word as it has been preached today, and Lord, that it would accomplish its desired ends. And Father, help us not to be ashamed. Help us to stand up in defense, at least in in support and um, of, of our Lord Jesus. Lord, to be grateful for for all that we have and to be willing to share that with others. We ask now that as we come together for communion, that you would prepare our hearts for that as well. Lord, that we would recognize that even as you search our hearts now, that light, it exposes what's inside. It exposes the deep thoughts that we try to hide from others. And yet, Lord, as your people, we don't want to be those that hide from the light. Lord, we want to bring them into the light and confess them and have them forgiven and removed. Lord, that your glory might be demonstrated in your salvation and your cleansing and your regeneration of sinners. We thank you so much for what you have accomplished by giving us your body, which is real bread, and your blood, which is real drink, for the salvation of our souls. So, Lord, please bless this 
feast that you have instituted to our edification and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Elders.